0: So, some really interesting questions came back um, uh, from last week about membership. Um, even during the, during the message, somebody said, Well, what do I need to do to, to, to become a member of this church? And as I said, Well, I'll try to make it really easy. Fill out the piece of paper and give me the paper, and you're a member. Um, I'm not going to card you at the door. I'm not going to do a litmus test on you to prove your, your spiritual uh, success and whether or not you're a Christian and all of this. Like, I, you, you have to decide that. If you sign on that piece of paper where well, you're making a commitment to a few different things um, that we talked about last week. So it's not difficult. You don't have to go through another class. Uh, somebody asked, do I have to be baptized in water to be a member in your church? And the answer is no. You do not have to be baptized in water to be a member of this church. I'd like you to be baptized in water, but I'm not going to force you and hold you under water and say, you know, I'm not going to come to your house and put you in your bathtub. Like, that's your decision. But you do not have to be a, a, a baptized in water to be a member of this church. Um, somebody else asked, um, I heard, um, can I be a member of another church at the same time? That's an interesting question. Uh, our constitution and bylaws, which we now have, which you'll find in the, in the membership packet there, uh, does, not, does not say you can't. Um, so I suppose technically you could be a member of two churches at once, but why would you want to? <laughs> here's, here's, here's why I'm, I'm saying that. Um, when you say you're, you want to be a member of this church, you're making a commitment to say, look, this is, this is not just a place where I come every Sunday and consume. This is where I, I'm a part of it. I contribute here. My, my time, my, my talent, my treasure, the three T's we talked about last week. Like, why would you want to do that in two churches? Do you have a lot of energy and a lot of money and a lot of, free time on your hands (laughs) like it's better to be to be committed to one rather than committed to two and there's a difference between you know visiting a church now and again and really being committed to a church there's a big difference between the two uh somebody asked the question can my membership be taken away from me Uh, that's a good question and the answer is actually yes it can Um, I do believe in church discipline. I do believe that the Bible teaches this. Uh, And I have had in in my ministry, uh, in particular when I was in big church, um, there's sometimes when you, you deal with situations in the life of a church where a person is doing something And it's a big something like it's, it's, wow, their behavior is, is destructive, not only to them, but to other people. And there's a problem that has to be challenged and has to be, hey, excuse me, but you you can't do that, because you're hurting other people and you're hurting yourself with that kind of behavior. And sometimes a person will say, okay, 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 and they'll get help, and okay, we'll try and fix it. But other times a person will say, uh-uh, I'm going to keep doing it, and I'm going to keep on hurting people, and I'm going to keep on keeping on, um, and I'm going I'm to eat your church alive. Um, and When that happens, then you have to say, well, no, you won't. And so there is, there is a way of doing that. I have had to, to do it on very, very, very rare occasions. It's extremely rare but it does happen. So that was the question that was asked. And I thought, wow, someone's, someone's thinking, okay? So just relax, all right? Yeah, no, it, it's, not, it's so rare that that happens. And usually when people behave in such an egregious way and you challenge them, um, usually if they don't want to change, they just leave. And they say, you know, I'll go somewhere else and wreak havoc somewhere else in some other church because you have enough guts to actually challenge my behavior Uh, so you know there is a such thing as church discipline it does happen but very 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 rarely and as I survey this wonderful and beautiful audience I don't see any or foresee any problems in the near future Sound, sound like a plan Okay, so those of you who you're interested in church membership, please, please, please pick up a packet. All you've got to do is hand that sheet back to me. And if you do, I will give you this book for free. The best book on church membership that's out there. It's the content of last week's message. Um, so all those things, those six attitudes that you're signing off on, they're all in here. And so you get a copy of it for free. I've not seen a better book on membership anywhere. Um, it's called I Am a Church Member by uh, Tom Rayner. All right. So um, yeah, I just wanted to, to put that out there and thank you again for those of you who are showing interest. And by the way, uh, I'm not interested in satisfying any statistical thing. Um, I could care less uh, about uh, quantities and numbers. You know, if if ten people say, "Yeah, I want membership," great. If five people say it, great. It's I don't have to satisfy some quota. It's about you saying, "Hey, I'm making a commitment here, and this is not just a place where I come. This is this is I I contribute here. This is a part of my whole my whole." Uh, uh, life you know this is this is a little bit of who I am is my commitment to this church okay Um, so uh, all that said we're going to move on and get to today's um, today's message and you can go ahead with the Facebook feed and uh, thank you those of you who who look at uh, what we do uh, online and you're using that Facebook as a way to share your faith, you can take these videos that we're making, and we, this, what we're doing now is streamed on Facebook Live, and when it's done, it goes up on the page. Well, share it, share it with your friends, share it with your non church people. I mean, it's so easy to invite people to church without inviting them to church. You share your, your feed, you share a video that you like, you share a message that you liked or that you think someone else will like. And that's a way of sharing your, your faith. It's an amazing tool. And thank you, those of you who are, who are doing that. Uh, today, we're going to do uh, start a two-week series, just a little short series on the subject of prayer. Um, here's why. There are, there are situations in life, uh, in any church, really, big or small, uh, but there are situations in life that you all are dealing with, um, and some of them you know. Uh, you know, in terms of in terms of our church, we have we have a family that's dealing with with you know a life threatening illness, and we're praying for them. And it, you know about Simon and Alicia and Eliam, we're praying for that family. But there are others of you in this in this assembly who you have you have some big big needs, and you have. You're experiencing something, Uh, it may not be as serious as as an illness that's threatening your life, uh, but you're experiencing something and it's not pleasant. It's, a, it's an experience of suffering. It's, um, it's a trial. It's a challenge. I don't know whatever theological term you want to try and find to make it to soothe its pain, but it is, no matter which one you try, it's a difficult situation. It's a painful situation, and it is not changing. No matter what you do, no matter what you try, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you don't pray, it doesn't change. You wake up with it, it's there. You go to bed at night, it's there. And you look and you say, well, is there something wrong with me? How come, uh, how come this is not changing? Isn't it supposed to get better? If I'm a Christian, isn't it supposed to get better? And when you think about the whole idea of prayer, there's all kinds of questions that come into your mind. I put a post on Facebook about it, and wow, it generated quite a bit of interest. Uh, well, so, like, do you pray? Well, if you do pray, you're unusual, you're odd. If you pray every day, you're a minority, you're a very small percentage of the population if you pray every day, even if you come to church every week. Most Christians who come to church every week do not, do not, do not pray every day. Most couples, I've said this before, do not pray together. Most do not. It's a very small percentage that do. Um, So it's because people have a lot, a lot of questions and a lot of frustrations about prayer you know and they say well how come how come this person prays and they seem to get results and how come when i pray nothing happens How come when I pray, it just feels like it's bouncing off the ceiling? I mean, I never hear God answer. I never hear God speak. I never see crazy things in the sky. I don't see any pillars of smoke or fire. I don't see any seas parting. I don't see any prayers answered. Maybe I'm just praying to myself. Maybe I've got the wrong God. Maybe there's something wrong. How come this this one works and this one doesn't work? What's wrong with me? How come it works for them? We have all these kinds of crazy questions. Um, And and at Christmas time, it gets even worse, because at Christmas time, we think, yes, 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 I can really get God's attention. And those of us church folk, you know, sometimes we bemoan and we, we get all bent out of shape when it comes to Santa Claus, and we say, oh, this Santa Claus thing, it's just terrible, You know why should? It's such a distraction. It's so ungodly. I remember when I was young and I was a new Christian. I was just so bent out of shape about Santa Claus. You know, I remember preaching a message and I called him in the message. I called him Satan Claus. Man, oh, this is just terrible, this mockery of God. You've got this mythical being, you know, who he, he knows everything. He seems to know who's naughty and who's nice, and, and he can go everywhere in one night and deliver presents. So It's like kind of a mockery of God, and I used to get all bent out of shape. And can I just tell you, some of us who do that, we treat God like Santa Claus. We do, because we say, well, if I'm naughty then God probably won't answer my prayer. But if I'm nice, well, God should answer my prayer, right? I'm being nice. I'm being a good person. I'm reading my Bible. I'm even praying. I'm even going to church. I even, I even became a member <laughs> at this little church. I mean, uh, but how come I'm being so nice, but God's not answering my prayer? Well, is he obliged to answer your prayer because you're nice? Not sure. Sometimes we can treat God a little bit like Santa, uh, even though he's nothing like Santa. So I want to talk to you about prayer for a couple of weeks to try and answer some of these questions. Um, And this is from a, a really exciting book that you can read maybe in one sitting or two sittings. It's an old, old book. It's, you know, we're talking about events that took place like 2,600 years ago, but it's a super exciting book. It's the book of Daniel in, in the Bible's Old Testament, all right? And you probably know a few things about Daniel. Any of you can, can tell me Daniel and the blank den? Lion's Den, yeah, you know that story. How about the, uh, the three boys and the blank furnace? the fiery furnace, right? Or uh, you, you know some of these things. So w- we're going to look at a couple of examples in the book of Daniel over the next two weeks uh, before we get into Christmas. And by the way, we'll have Pastor Roger Berg with us next week from uh, Queensway in Toronto. And he's going to come and share a little bit uh, with me on the subject of prayer. And that's a church that's a whole lot bigger than us. That's like three thousand thirty five hundred people. Um, and you think we have you know, examples of people who are experiencing sort of suffering that doesn't go away. When you're 3,000, you've got that multiplied over and over and over again. Um, So anyway, talking about the book uh, of Daniel and examples of prayer. So first and foremost, you've got to understand what's going on in this book because it really, really relates to today. You have the beginning of the 6th century BC and you have... um, uh, the Babylonians are going to come in, and they're going to lay siege to the city of Jerusalem. Uh, they're going to have several waves of attack, and eventually, they're going to defeat the city. They're going to burn the temple. They're going to destroy the city. They're going to—they're going to wreak havoc, and they will take people. Uh, captive to this foreign land, to Babylon, hundreds of miles away, to this this completely different culture that's, that's a whole different religious system. And, and this is the beginning, the introduction to the book of Daniel. Bam! You have it happen right away, right at the beginning. And you are introduced, in particular, to four young men. Uh, four, they're probably... Teenagers, maybe young adults. It depends what scholar you may be talking to, but they, they, these these young men end up in Babylon with with hundreds of other Jewish people, and they're in an alien land. Okay, there's no, there's no. Judaism there. It's a whole different religious system. It's a whole different alien culture. Imagine being taken from your home, being made captive in this foreign land, and what they do right away is they try to brainwash these four young boys or young adults, and they want to indoctrinate them in the whole language, custom, religion, everything of the Babylonian culture. They even give them uh, different names. Do, can you, do you know the names beyond Daniel? Um, of the, there's three other boys that are referred to. Do you know their names? Can you shout them out at me? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Okay, you all speak Babylonian. So those are their names that they were given. I remember meeting people who were named after them. uh, There's a great, great old sermon, an amazing sermon that you can can look up online uh, called That's My King by an African-American preacher by the name of Shadrach Meshach Lockwood, I think it is, S.M. Lockwood. It is an amazing sermon, one of the best I've ever heard, but his name was Shadrach Shadrach Meshach Lockwood, S.M. Lockwood, is, I think is named, the title of the message, That's My King. Worth looking up and watching on YouTube. It's only like a five or seven minute message. Amazing, amazing. But he's named in, those are Babylonian names. Okay, do you know the names of those guys not in Babylonian? So, so Daniel, He was renamed, when he got into the culture, Belteshazzar. These are all in references to different Babylonian gods. Uh, Shadrach, his real name is Hananiah. That's his Hebrew name. Meshach, his real name is Mishael. And Abednego, his real name is Azariah. So most of us know the Babylonian names, ironically, but not the Hebrew names. So these are the four four young guys who were introduced to right away, boom, right in your face, right at the beginning. And of course, we've got this king of Babylon. He's got a really crazy name, Nebuchadnezzar. Say that five times, right? Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, so he's the king and, and there's this whole system to brainwash these young guys and turn them into the cream of the crop. Uh, he wanted the best. He wanted the best looking. He wanted the, the people uh, in the captives who had the most aptitude, the most intelligence. He said, give me the cream of the crop and we're gonna brainwash these people. We're gonna transform them into the elite and they will become part of the whole Babylonian system. All right, that's, you, you, you see that in chapter 1. And what happens is that um, they're, they're given a new diet, um, if you know the story, and uh, they, they refuse the diet. So they're given the so-called royal food, and, and Daniel in particular speaks up, and he says, I'm not going to eat this. Uh, I don't want this food. This is not the type of food that I eat, and he doesn't want to, to defile himself with this food. Probably it's not kosher. Uh, he's probably following the dietary laws in Leviticus. He doesn't want to eat this food, and he doesn't want to compromise. And he says, I'm not going to eat it. And so the, 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 the leader there, uh, who's kind of assigned to these, these boys, he says, you're causing me big problems because if you don't eat this food, you're going to start to look weaker and less strong than the other, the other students who were there in, you know, the University of Babylon, as it were. And uh, that's going to reflect badly on me. So you need to like eat this food. And Daniel says, let me make a deal with you. Give us 10 days and we're going to eat our food. We don't want uh, y- your stuff. We're going to eat uh, vegetables, and we're going to, to not drink the wine. We're going to have ba- essentially water and vegetables is basically <laughs> what they're eating. We don't know what kind of vegetables. We don't know what kind of super water it was. I mean, there's books that have been written about this to try and come up with what was his crazy diet that Daniel was on. Nobody really knows. Uh, but in any case, he says, give us 10 days. And let us eat our own food. So he does. And he says, all right, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll take you up on your offer. And after the 10 days, lo and behold, uh, Daniel and Mishael and, and what's his name? Uh, uh, Azariah and Hananiah, they, they look better than the other, the other students. They look a whole lot better. It's like they're kind of Glowing. It's like wow! What? What what are they eating? You know, and so they say. Well, you can continue to eat that because you look a whole lot better than everybody else. Whatever your diet is, you were right, and it 's working and you see right away that God is with these young boys, and they have understanding, they have knowledge uh, their their literature uh, uh, their ability with literature is very, very high, and they can understand visions and they can interpret dreams these 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 four boys, and it's clear that that, um, that 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 God is giving them some favor in this foreign foreign land. And um, so they're presented to the king, and this, this leader who looks after these four boys, he says, this is, this is the cream of the crop I'm bringing to you right here. And so the king questioned them, and he finds, my goodness, these are intellectuals. These are like, these are Harvard students. I mean, whatever you did, you did a real good job with these four. So I want them, and I want them in my service, and I want them to join uh, the lot of people who, you know, my astrologers and the diviners and the people who interpret dreams and magic and all this kind of occult stuff. He says, I want them to join that team because they clearly are smarter than everybody else. Are you with me so far? So that's chapter one of the book of Daniel. And then you see the first real example of, of how prayer works in here. But I want you to see first and foremost, these, these young men, are facing unjust circumstances. They're facing uh, what will be an unfair execution, which we'll get into in a moment. But, but right away, they're in a circumstance that is painful. They're away from home, they're hundreds of miles away from home. They make a decision to not compromise, however. And may God give us young people who are like that. As I look at, at, at some of the young people who are here today, my goodness, don't be a statistic. All right, because the statistics say, and I've said this before, and maybe your parents need to hear it again, they are leaving the church in droves. Young people in their teens and early twenties—that's the people who who most uh, church leaders are the most concerned about because they're leaving the church in droves. May God give us young people who say, "No, I won't be a statistic." Um, I will learn what I believe and I'll learn why I believe it and I'll model myself after someone like Daniel who said "Uh uh-uh I don't care if I'm in a foreign culture an alien culture a godless culture I will continue to serve the Lord we're working with the youth on Friday nights by the way to try and help them in that whole thing of learning what they believe and why they believe it Um, in any case in Daniel chapter 2 you see that it's about to get real for these boys because this king Nebuchadnezzar who is paranoid ruthless, self-centered, arrogant. I mean, you read some of the things that this king does and it is all about him. We, we complain about rulers today and about world rulers and the way that they are and their arrogance and all this. And, you know, I like to poke fun at our neighbors down to the south. And we love to make fun of, you know, the Canadians I find especially are really, really good at criticizing, you know, the current president of the United States. And, wow, you know, they say all kinds of things, unbelievable things sometimes. But I don't find too many Canadians who like him. And probably half the nation of the U.S. doesn't like him either, but let me just tell you that Nebuchadnezzar makes the, if you if you loathe the current president of the United States, uh, I mean Nebuchadnezzar makes him look like uh, I don't know an angel, okay? Because Nebuchadnezzar is like the epitome of arrogance, selfishness, paranoia, abuse of power. Uh, you know he 's unjust he's, he does whatever he wants and he 'll kill anybody who 's in the way and you talk about unfair and unjust that 's what these boys and that 's what all these captives are living in and we complain that we 're in difficult circumstances well they're they 're in really really bad trouble and and a, a, a big big a big problem comes their way if it wasn 't bad enough to be brought to this this horrific place babylon well the king nebuchadnezzar he has uh he has some dreams that bother him and um they really this one particular dream in chapter two he has and he's really really bothered by this dream and he says one of, my, one of my team here, one of these smart people, these astrologers, these magicians, whatever you want to call them, they need to interpret this dream and they need to tell me what this dream means because this dream is very, very, very disturbing to me. And, but he sets up a rather, shall we say, interesting challenge. So his whole, his whole team comes to him and says, well, tell us the dream and we'll interpret it. And he says, no, I'm not going to tell you what the dream is you're going to tell me what the dream is and then you will interpret it <laughs> and they all say well, have you flipped your have you flipped your lid like nobody can do that you're, you're asking us to do something that's that's impossible you're asking us to tell you what your dream is and then to interpret. how are we supposed to know what your dream is and he says well here's how you're supposed to know if you don't tell me what the dream is, I kill you. That's how it will work. And so don't give me any of your excuses. Uh, you, you will all lose your lives if you cannot tell me what this dream is. How's that sound? So maybe you can figure it out. But, and they say, but it's impossible. It's impossible. Do you know what they're asking for? There's actually, in the, in the New Testament, this is named... There is a a supernatural gift of the Holy Spirit that is named that, that he doesn't know all this, of course, and back in the book of Daniel, but he's looking for essentially what we would call a word of knowledge. He's looking for these, these astrologers and whatnot to know, to supernaturally know something when they haven't been given the information by anybody except God and this is what the king is asking for, you do something supernatural and I'll believe you. And they say, well, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among men. So you're asking something that's impossible, and he says, well, fine, I'm going to kill you all. So how do you like that? Would you like to be led by a, a leader like that? Don't you think that's a little unfair?" Don't you think maybe that's a little bit unjust? I mean, a little bit, well, God, why don't you bring us to this place? Where's your hand of blessing on us? You know, we don't compromise. We don't, we, 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 we're in here and we're trying to live for you. And yet you bring us into this circumstance. This is really, this is a bad, bad, bad scene. And, you know, the king is not letting down. And so the, the captain of the, of the king's guard, his name is Ariok, in verse 14, chapter 2. He goes out and he's going to tell Daniel and his friends, uh, you're, you're, you're on the line too, your necks are on the line too, because this is what the king has said. And uh, Daniel, wise as he is, he says, why is the king being so harsh? Why did he issue such a harsh decree? My goodness, it, it, isn't that a little bit uh, over the top? He's going to kill us if we don't. He says, listen, um, I'm going to go to the king and I'm going to ask the king for some more time, more time. And then in verse 17, Daniel returned to his house and he explained the matter to his friends by their Hebrew names, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. And watch this, verse 18. He urged them, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men in, in Babylon. And so he's basically saying, he goes to his, to his buddies and he says, you are going to plead for mercy from God to give me the answer and to give me this supernatural knowledge. You go plead with God. Um, I'm just telling you just a little tip when you're praying. There's nothing wrong with pleading okay, if you need to plead, you plead, okay, there's an old saying in in Pentecostalism, you ever heard this saying, uh, plead the blood of Jesus, have you ever heard that, that used to be said, uh, uh, you know, 50, 100 years ago, people used to say, I plead the blood of Jesus, you never heard that, wow, okay, that's, that is stunning, that's an old kind of Pentecostal term, but if you have to plead with God, there's nothing wrong with it, apparently, because Daniel said, you go and plead, and I'm going to go to the king and ask for more time, and lo and behold, during the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Boom, he's got the answer, and look at how uh, Daniel um, uh, 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 responds. This is before he even goes to the king. Look at what he says. Um, This is in verses uh, 17 to uh, to 23. And in verse 20, it says this, praise be uh, uh, to the name of God forever and ever. And watch how fast it goes by. He says, wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He sets up kings and he deposes them. And Everybody said, amen. Who doesn't like the current president of the United States, right? He sets up kings and he deposes them. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and power. You have made known to me what we asked of you and have made known to us the dream of the king. Wisdom and power are his. He changes. He sets. He gives. He reveals. He knows Light dwells with him. Do you see what he's doing? We don't even know the prayer that was prayed by the three boys. But we see the response of Daniel gives us a clue. He has a very, very clear understanding of the nature of God. It is amazing what he understands and what he knows of God. But what he's doing in his kind of prayer of thanksgiving, if you will, is he's simply acknowledging the nature of God. As if to say, even if the prayer wasn't answered, God is still these things. I mean, how many of you know wisdom and power are always his? He always changes, he always sets, he always. He gives, he reveals, he knows, light dwells within him. These things are true of God, period. And Daniel is kind of reminding himself of this, even as God has given him this dream. And you will see later the interpretation of the dream. And there's several things that we can learn from this really, really quickly that apply to us in the 21st century. And this is why you should be people who pray. Um, Number one, because God's nature is prioritized over his benefits. His nature is to be a priority over the benefits that he gives. So Daniel simply acknowledges God's nature. And when you have that straight, when you are praying and it's, look, this is the nature of God regardless of what happens. Regardless of what happens, he changes times and seasons. I mean, regardless of what happens, he sets up kings and he just deposes them. He does those things, period, and that is the priority of my life of prayer. Whatever the circumstances may be, okay. But that is a secondary thing to the priority of the nature of God. And this is what Daniel gets. And if you read the book of Daniel, you will see it over and over and over again. There's a priority on understanding the nature of God and who he is above all things. Regardless of what he ends up doing, this is the doctrine of sovereignty. Fancy word doesn't uh, sovereignty, like Quebec wants to become sovereign sometimes. You ever heard it that way? So sovereignty means looks after the affairs of. God looks after the affairs of this world. He runs the show. He is sovereign. And this is what is being taught all over the place in the book of Daniel. And this example is just one. You should pray because his nature is prioritized over his benefits. Number two, you should pray because God... Will show you mercy. It's interesting. Go and plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Do you know what mercy is? We like to use mercy in the same sentence sometimes as grace. The two are different, okay? Here's an easy definition grace is God gives you what you don't deserve. That's grace. How many of you are thankful for grace? I'm very thankful for grace, okay? So God gives you what you don't deserve. He he has brought you into his family. He's made you a child of God, and you do not deserve that, okay? So it's a gift. Salvation is presented as a gift. This is the grace of God. We get the word charity from the same word. It's a a gift. Uh, Mercy is different. So where grace is, God gives you what you don't deserve. Mercy is, God doesn't give you what you do deserve. He doesn't give you what you do deserve. So what do you deserve? Well, you deserve and I deserve to be separated from God. That's, that's the end result of our sin. But God does not do that and his mercy and his grace work together. He withholds from us what we do deserve, and he gives to us what we don't deserve. And here, this word mercy, maybe God will have mercy on you, and maybe the circumstance will change. And this is the way that we need to understand answered prayer, especially answered prayer of this nature. these This is the grace and the mercy of God working together. Here, here Dan Daniel terms it as mercy but he understands this I don't deserve to have this happen to me what I do deserve is probably a whole lot worse but maybe God will have mercy you go and you plead with him you know sometimes people say well I'm sure glad that I wasn't in that car accident Uh, you know, or I didn't get into that car and, you know, somebody got into it and they had an accident. Well, you know, they're okay, let's say, but I'm sure glad that they weren't, that I wasn't part of it. Thank God, we say, right? Well, what about the people who were in in the car accident? Where was God with them, you see? And so we need to start rethinking some of this stuff to realize, hey, there are times in life where God, because he's so good, He gives us what we don't deserve and he withholds from us what we do. And when my prayers are answered with a yes, not only will I say thank God, but thank God for his mercy and thank God for his grace, because I don't deserve to have any of those prayers answered. What I deserve is a whole lot different than answered prayer, but thank God. He's gracious, and he's merciful, you see, and so this is the way that Daniel understood this, but not only do we see this kind of thing in the book of Daniel. We'll give, we'll finish with another example. Same, same uh, uh, characters except minus one. Uh, Daniel is off the scene. Um, he has been promoted, uh, you could say, because he's able to interpret the dream uh, that Nebuchadnezzar has. And you can go through all of that on your own in chapter two and read it. It's 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 amazing to to see uh, what the dream is and how he interprets it. And scholars scholars go crazy um, about this because he he shows with with very um, accurate terms. Uh, the future as it relates to a series of empires that will come into that part of the world. And, this, and scholars who know the history, they say, look, whoever wrote this thing in Daniel chapter two, they obviously wrote it after the events in question, because if anybody knows their history, they know that this is talking about this, and this is talking about, you know, the Greeks and the Seleucids and all these different things you can read about it yourself. And they say it has to be written afterward because it's obvious who he's talking about. It's, it's really quite incredible. In any case, we move to, um, to the third chapter of Daniel, and then you're going to see another big problem. And here, Daniel is off the scene. Again, he's been been promoted. And the king, you know, who's arrogant and who's paranoid and who's self-centered and who's narcissistic and, you know, has a fondness for executing anybody who gets in his way or his will, he decides to build a big old statue. Now, most say that the statue is made to himself. It's rather large. It's 90 feet high and it's nine feet wide. And he sets up this big statue in the plain of Dura in the province of Daniel. And he says, here, uh, sorry, province of uh, Babylon. And he says, here's how it's going to work. We're going to get all these musicians together. And when the musicians play, everybody bows down to the statue. So we're going to have a huge gathering. And it's all about the statue, presumably of himself. And as soon as you hear the music, everybody bows down. Does everybody understand? I, Nebuchadnezzar, have spoken. Wow, that seems really unjust, seems really unfair. How come these Hebrew boys who serve God are under such an unjust, unfair circumstance again? This is not the first time. This is the second time. And so, but that's the circumstance, and that's what they have to deal with. And oh, by the way, if anybody doesn't bow when the music plays, they'll be... Executed Nebuchadnezzar's. You know, very fond of this, and so this is the deal. So, what are these Hebrew boys going to do? I mean, they're in this land, and you know, they don't want to compromise. If they compromise, then they may live. But if they don't compromise, they're going to die. And what are they going to do? And and so, word comes to be, uh, you know, that that some of the enemies of these boys they say, look, um, King, uh, you said. When the music plays, everybody falls down and worships the image of gold, and that whoever doesn't fall down and worship the image gold, what do you do with them? You take them and you execute them, but how you said king, you're gonna throw them into the furnace of blazing fire. And scholars debate as to how big this thing was and how much fire and how big it had to be to hold all these people and all of that, and you can look that up on your own. In any case, that's the punishment, and they remind the king and they say, Listen, King, um, you've got a problem here because there are these boys and they're in your service and they, they look after your affairs in the province of Babylon. And these are their names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, going by their Babylonian names. And King, uh, we want you to know they don't pay any attention to you and uh, they don't serve your gods and they're not going to worship the image of gold that you set up. And of course, the king says, excuse me, they're not going to what? What? They're this little king, they're not going to bow down and worship the image that you set up. Uh, we just want to let you know. And, he, and he, he gets into a rage and he says, is this true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you don't serve my, my gods? And he brings them forward. He, You're not going to worship the, the image of gold that I set up? And so when you hear the music, just you bow down, right? That's what you do. Because I'm Nebuchadnezzar. And they say, uh, no, no. And he says, well, what god is going to rescue you from my hand if you do not bow to the thing? Like this is a big problem. And listen to their reply that they say. It's it's really it is very revealing. Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter if uh, we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it, and he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But it doesn't stop there. Look at the next verse in verse 18. But even if he does not, We want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Excuse me? Even if he does not, it was in their thinking, apparently, these Hebrew boys, that, look, God may not deliver us from this this unjust circumstance from this, this evil king, but we're not going to compromise. So come what may, king, we will not, and we do not even need to defend ourselves in this matter. How could they think that way? And how could they have in their thinking, even if he does not? Here's why. Because they have in their minds something very different than what this king has in his mind. For him, it's all about the temporary. It's all about the here and now. It's all about him. And for those Hebrew boys, they're seeing even beyond the grave. Their point of view is, look, whatever suffering we face in this life, here we're captive in Babylon. I mean, we have, we have problem after problem after problem after problem. But King, we're, we want you to know that we're not going to compromise what we believe because we live... We live for a God who transcends the here and now. We live for a God who transcends even the grave itself. So even if he does not, we will not serve your gods ever, ever, ever. And so the king gets really, really mad at this. He's like, okay, now, now you're finished. So he says, turn up the heat. Turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, because we're going to finish these people off once and for all. Who do they think they are? are. They're not going to bow down and worship this image. I'm the law of the land around here, and I'm going to make a statement, turn the heat up. He turns it up so hot that people around die. Like the guards and the people who are tending to the thing are, turn it up higher. I mean, he's in an absolute rage and he throws them into the, into the furnace. And this, the way the story goes, he's stunned. He, he, he doesn't understand what he's seeing because number one, he sees that the boys are not being burned alive. They're not being, being executed as he had planned. And he sees someone else in there in that furnace with them in his terms, one like a son of man, uh, one like the son of the gods, you know, there's somebody in there with these three boys, and there's nothing, they're not burned, they're not singed, and how could this be, how could this happen, and you see that the king has quite a reaction that you can read on your own, but the, the lesson that we learn in terms of prayer is we're going to pray even if God may say no, Even if God doesn't deliver us. And this is the thing about about 21st century Christianity. Um, We're looking for God to deliver the goods. And when God doesn't deliver the goods, well, maybe God is the problem. Maybe my faith is a problem. Maybe The the devil is somehow invaded the situation. You know, uh, who knows? But God must deliver the goods because that's who God is after all. He will deliver us. He will do all this. He will prosper us. He will heal us. And he will do so at our beck and call all the time. And this is why we serve God. That's not why Daniel served God. That's not why the other three boys served God. They served God because they recognized that they served one whose nature transcends life itself and even death itself and they were like you know what we acknowledge the sovereignty of God and even if he does not deliver we will still serve him and this is the way that we need to pray friends we need to pray eat God no matter what happens in the situation whether I get the supernatural answer is it cold in here do you feel cold air Okay, somebody um, play with the thermostats, guys. There's one on that wall, one on that wall, and take it up a notch. We're allowed to if you find it too cold. I see somebody with their hood on there, and I could feel, man, I could feel the draft. At least it keeps you from sleeping. That's good. So le- learn this lesson in, in, about prayer as we finish. When you're facing these kinds of circumstances, and you're looking for God to deliver the goods... And you see that the goods are not coming. And you wonder, okay, is it my faith? Have I got the wrong God? Is there some sort of invader that's blocking all of this from happening? Okay, pray like Daniel did. Pray like these boys did. They understood we are serving one who has characteristics about him that transcend all of this stuff. And our life on this earth is like a little tiny blip on a radar. I mean, uh, just, just this past week, as an example, one of, the, one of the pastors in our section of English churches in the district of Quebec uh, passed away immediately, immediately. I saw him at a, at a conference just last month. His name is Dave McCann, and he pastored at a little small church in Ganawagi, And he, he passed away very, very suddenly, just like that. It, they say it was a stroke or a heart attack. It happened uh, just a few days ago, and his funeral was yesterday. Boom, just like that. Uh, And and that's the reality of life, friends. Our our lives are like a whisper. They're like a vapor that we face in this life. And we want all of this stuff to happen for us now. And we want all of these perks and all of these benefits now, 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 now. As if God is Santa Claus, a cell phone, uh, a computer, a vending machine, a microwave, and a really fast car all rolled into one okay, this is not who God is. Understand who God is by the way that these boys understood uh, who he was. Um, looking at it um, looking at it again there, wisdom and power are his. He changes things. He sets things in order. He gives. He reveals. He knows and light dwells with him. You pray that way and you're not gonna go wrong even if your suffering lasts for a while. Do you see what I'm saying? So we, we've got to We've got to change the way that we perceive God and the way that we understand uh, prayer. And, and just re- remember a few things um, a- a- as we close. You, you pray because his nature um, is prioritized over his benefits. You pray because God does. He does. He does show mercy. And you pray even if God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't deliver For me and my house, we will still serve the Lord.